Hello everyone, I'm Harvey Brownstone, and today I am honored to welcome one of the most prolific, respected, and celebrated directors in cinematic history. He took the world by storm in 1963 as the youngest BBC director ever. He launched the wildly successful Doctor Who series, and since then he's gone on to direct everyone from Sybil Thorndike, Betty Davis, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, Ava Gardner, Anthony Hopkins, John Gielgud, and even Barry Manilow. He is, of course, the incredibly gifted director, Waris Hussein. Waris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Before we begin talking about your film career, I want to ask you about your youth, which by all accounts was very unusual. You were born in India under British rule and had a rather aristocratic childhood. Your family moved to England when you were eight years old because your father was appointed to the Indian High Commission. So there you were adjusting to the hypocritical world of the British upper class. What was that like? Well, it was an odd situation because the transition from uh, leading a very, maybe perhaps an aristocratic life in London, uh, in uh, India, uh, we came to a war-torn Britain. It was the aftermath of a lot of uh, destruction in this city. And uh, the sunlight of India suddenly became the fog of London. So for me as a small child, I had to really adjust. That has an effect from one's childhood to one's adult. So I would say the results of that uh, have stayed with me forever. You were the first director of the mega popular Doctor Who series on BBC. Are you surprised that the Doctor Who franchise has become such a phenomenal success? There's a whole legend behind the making of that series. The BBC made it as some kind of punctuation mark. They never really thought it was going to take off. I was the most junior director at the BBC at the time, and they didn't know what to do with me. They just put me under contract, and there was nothing for me to do. Then this idea came up, actually created by a Canadian, Sidney Newman, who was the head of drama at the time, and he wanted to reverse everything from traditional uh, dramas to something adventurous, especially for children. And they looked around to find a director because nobody wanted to touch this project. They just thought it was very quirky and not particularly potentially successful. So I was just appointed it on a casual level. I was very nervous and I wanted to do my best. The producer was a woman, which was very unusual at the time. They did not have women producers in the drama department in television. We were put together, that was myself, Verity Lambert, and Sidney Newman. There were the three of us. We were all outsiders in a very traditional British background. Everyone wearing corduroy trousers and tweed jackets and old school ties. That's the atmosphere which started off Doctor Who, which was given, I think, about six months. <laughs> and look where we are today. Well, in 1965, after your incredible success in creating the Doctor Who franchise, you found yourself still a youngster directing Sybil Thorndike in the BBC's prestigious adaptation of A Passage to India. You were breaking down barriers as the first Indian person in your field while working with iconic stars. Were you ever intimidated? Uh, it was intimidating, but it was a something that I could not have dreamed about. It came into my orbit because the original director, who was not Indian by any means, was allocated this very prestigious production. And I was just asked if I would do second unit filming in India because I was going to be there on vacation. 
And would I just do television filmed inserts to what would otherwise be a studio production? And I was so sad that I wasn't originally offered it, but I agreed to do the television inserts back in India. As fate would have it, the original director fell ill and they asked me to step in at the last minute. So I ended up with this fantastic production with my television and filmed inserts and the rest of it was done in the studio. Warris, I understand you dealt with subtle and not so subtle racism during your career. Can you tell us the story about the posh upper class dinner party you attended in Campton Hill while you were filming Edward and Mrs. Simpson? Oh, that's a story to be told. It's very hard for me to sound as if I'm going to be complaining because in all fairness, if we're going to discuss discrimination, England has been very good to me. My career has flourished in this landscape. What I have been able to do is travel on the surface, but it's, it's very thin ice. And however much my professional life has been possible in Britain, my social life has been fairly discriminated and not basically discriminating, but subtle in its praise. I mean, for instance, when I was doing Edward and Mrs. Simpson, which was a very famous drama that took place, as we know about the abdication, condescending people would ask me, how on earth did you know our history? And I'd say, but I've been here since I was eight years old, and I'm a British subject, a colonial, I know, but the British have an extraordinary way of forgetting their past. And I still remember it. <laughs> I'm not weighted down by it, but I can be critical of it. And I, I won't say anybody discriminated against me explicitly, but there was an air of condescension in the way I was received. There was a famous dinner party, which I went to, very high class, upper class people in Camden Hill, which is a fashionable part of London. I was with my other half partner who was from New Zealand both of us ex-colonials, somebody at the dinner party refused to sit next to me. And I wanted to know why. And he said, well, I don't really know what you're doing. And I, you, I, I'm amazed that we have foreigners telling us our history when he heard that I was directing Edward and Mrs. Simpson. And that's the only time I really encountered an upper class attitude to the kind of person that he could address with any, without any kind of purpose or meaning to me, but it was something that stuck with me. What did you do when he said that? I tried to be dignified. It was very interesting because he was the only one who held forth like this. And I might add that the rest of the people at the dinner party were shocked. After dinner, we went back in to uh, have drinks. He raised his voice and said, uh, I don't want to sit in the same room as that man. At that point, I broke and I stood up and I said, excuse me, I said, I was brought up by you English people and taught how to have manners. I now realize that I was wrong, but I will spare you any further injury or insult by leaving. Thank you. And I left. I think it's an important story to tell. Now, you directed some very important productions at the BBC, including Sleeping Dog in 1967 that dealt with racism and Spoiled in 1968, which dealt with homosexuality in a school. When I was doing my research for this interview, 
Warris, I was shocked and furious to discover that these films were destroyed by the BBC. You must be very upset about this. The bulk of my uh, dramas at that time, which uh, I reached a sort of apex of my career, a series called The Wednesday Play, written by very important writers at the time who were just beginning. Harold Pinter wrote in those things. Simon Gray, who I worked with. Spoiled was a story about a young man who's a Catholic who seduced by a married school teacher whose wife was seven months pregnant. And the effect on the boy and his Catholicism was uh, then questioned. At that time, the BBC was being very adventurous, and I had the privilege of being a part of this. That was a story about discrimination against gays, way ahead of its time. The other drama that I directed called Sleeping Dog, written by Simon Gray, was about racism. It deals with an ex-colonial couple retired from somewhere in Africa who come to southern England. The retired governor has fantasies about his past, and he sees his wife talking to a black bartender and suspects something more than there was. Uh, because of his attitude to black people, he then invites the man to his house, which they purchased in the country, on a polite basis. The bartender attends and goes with him. The colonial puts him into a basement, puts a chain round his neck, and starts to treat him as if he's an animal. And the rest of the drama is all about this man obsessed with the black person down in the basement. Now, that could not be shot today. It would be appalling and it was would not be allowed. No broadcaster I know would take that on at the moment. But at the time, it was incredibly potent and said something raw and said something very frightening about what lies beneath the calm exterior of British colonialism. And why were these films destroyed by the BBC? I remember being in the head of drama's um, office when a man came in with a list and he said, what do we do with this? And the head of drama took the list and he said, wipe it, wipe them. That was the way they were doing it. The reason for this was, just to give an explanation, was that these were all recorded on tape. And in those days, tape was precious and it was used, reused again. They were simply practicing economics. Well, that's really terrible. Now, what brought you to America? I did a series called The Glittering Prizes it had a huge impact in America. A couple of producers saw my show and out of the blue, I got a script. They had seen something in my work that decided that I was right for them. And it was amazing for me because it opened a door. So that's what brought me initially to the States to work. I understand Colleen Dewhurst was responsible for getting you some uh, directorial positions in Hollywood. Colleen Dewhurst was the actual star of that production that I was asked to do. It was a show called Death Penalty for NBC television, a major project. Uh, the producers had just done a huge successful production of uh, a series called Holocaust, which had taken America by storm. They were in a position to ask for anybody they wanted. They decided to offer me this uh, this script. The star of it was this lady called Colleen Dewhurst. We got on incredibly well. I finished shooting Death Penalty, 
with uh, Colleen Dewhurst, came back to London. I got a call from who else but Colleen Dewhurst back in America. And she called me and said, Warris, something has told me I should contact you because I've been offered a pilot for a series uh, called Baby Make Six to be shot in California. And I have director approval. Are you available? Can I send you a script? I said, well, absolutely. So literally two days later, script arrived. I read it. I said yes. And within a week, I found myself in California directing a show that I had never anticipated. And the production didn't even know me. The producers did not know me. They only knew me because the leading lady was in, actually insisting on having me. While all that was going on, I got a phone call from Buzz Berger and Herb Brodkin in New York. I was in L.A. We have another script for you. Suddenly I was offered another job. All I can say is that was the beginning. It became like a domino effect. Well, that's destiny. You were meant to come to America. And uh, I do want to ask you now about some of my favorite films. In 1978, you directed Edward and Mrs. Simpson a seven-part miniseries which won an Emmy Award for Outstanding Limited Series, four BAFTA Awards. One of the stars was Dame Peggy Ashcroft, who played Queen Mary. What was she like to work with? All I can say is that it was a huge privilege. This was one of the great actresses on cinema or on the stage in England. And I have a story to tell because she was not in our sights because the script itself, seven parts, the character of Queen Mary only appears briefly in different episodes, but has no big scenes. It's not the most important starring role. And when we were casting it, they were thinking of all sorts of other people. And I said, why can't we offer this to Peggy Ashcroft? And they said, she's never gonna do it. It's not big enough. I said, let me say something. How many times do you think she's going to be offered this role anywhere else? My instinct said to the casting director, the least we can do is offer it. We have nothing to lose. Sure enough, she said yes. And when I spoke to her one day in a moment, pausing between takes, I said, tell me what made you say yes to this? And she said, when else would I have been able to play Queen Mary? Oh, exactly. So what that, said. that is exactly what happened. And I feel very privileged to have worked with this lady. Now, Boris, I know you've been asked about this a million times, and I apologize, but I just have to go there because no interview about your career would be complete without at least mentioning the 1973 calamity, which you directed, known as Divorce His, Divorce Hers, starring none other than Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. They were at the tail end of their marriage, and from what I can gather, you were caught in the middle of their acrimony. I've always thought about describing this journey that I made. Uh, first of all, let me put it this way. They started their relationship with a bang on Cleopatra, and they ended up on a whimper with my show. It was, it was the end of the line, and I happened to catch the end of a very turbulent relationship that was known all over the world. And at this time in their lives, everything was falling apart. I had no idea about any of this, but it fell apart all the way down the line. 
And I found myself in the middle of what was basically a given disaster from the day it started. I was young, I was ambitious, I was anxious to please, which is actually the wrong road for Elizabeth. Elizabeth needed a lot of nurturing and also a lot of firmness. My firmness was not strong enough. So I have to confess, without sounding as if it was anybody's particular fault, it was a set of circumstances. Apart from anything else, we were shooting in Munich. Elizabeth hated being in Germany. She had converted to Judaism. And at various points on set, she would make some very derogatory remarks about crew or the set. Very difficult for me to counteract any of that. And I think all of that shows in the show itself. Well, clearly Richard Burton was an alcoholic, and you have described him as a failed intellectual. What did you mean by that? Richard fancied himself as an academic. He'd gone briefly to Oxford during his war years when he was serving in the Air Force, and he wanted to be a professor. He wanted to teach people. That was, it, it, that was his secret longing, is to be acknowledged for his intellectual capacity and for his ability to be literate. Uh, none of that was possible under the circumstances in which he found himself. After all, he married one of the most famous movie stars in the world, and he got drawn into that world. He said something very interesting to me. He said, Boris, I learned everything I know about film from that lady over there pointing to Elizabeth, but I basically wanted to be quiet and I wanted to read. And I found that very moving. I, he said that to me in a moment of quiet, calm contemplation but i saw a, a sad man crumbling you know i learned a lot on that show i learned resilience i know that i must never count out to the person i'm working with i've discovered a lot of things about directing people and i i'm grateful to them for that so it was not all negative You've been quoted as saying that once she hit middle age, Elizabeth Taylor was not really an actress, she was a star. What do you think happened to her? Because as a youngster, she was a good actress. Elizabeth, she herself in one of her interviews confessed that she learned quite early on when she was working with Montgomery Clift on A Place in the Sun, she watched the intensity with which he prepared his role. And she said right up to that point, she, all she had to do was to just to present herself. She never learned how to dig into the psyche of the person she's playing. She confessed to that. Unfortunately, she didn't always follow through on that philosophy. The only person who brought her out with a lot of depth to it, her performance was when she did Virginia, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Because she was drilled into that. She, she rehearsed, I think, by Mike Nichols for almost 10 days. She never asked, you see. But he made her think, who are you and why are you? That is what a real actor should be doing. And unfortunately, I don't think she did that all the time. She depended on the way she looked. Well, Elizabeth Taylor was known to be very supportive of her gay friends, Roddy McDowell, Montgomery Clift, Rock Hudson. I can't understand why she didn't treat you very well. I think she she was uneasy with me. There was a kind of jealousy factor involved, and I'm not making this into an emotional situation, but Richard was very fond of me. When we first met, he said to me, you're Indian, I'm Welsh, and we're not fucking English. 
he separated himself immediately and allied himself to me. She sensed this. And there was some kind of possessiveness on her part, even though they were falling apart anyway. But there was a kind of attitude. And she saw in me somebody who wasn't strong enough, actually, to be honest. I was being too subservient. I was trying to be someone who just tried to be polite. She didn't want polite. She wanted a punch in the guts. And I wasn't giving it to her. That's true. I mean, the, the gay element may well have appealed to the kind of people who she made friends with. But in my case, I don't think she could understand me at all. Don't forget, I mean, how often do you come across an Indian with a posh English accent making sense of a complicated script? She had no knowledge of me. She, I doubt if she even knew where India was, apart from the jewelry that came from there. Her lack of knowledge probably stopped somewhere east of Rome. I feel sad because years later, Roddy McDowell, who I became friends with, and your question is about her friendship with gay men. Roddy said to me, you know, Warris, I think you should go. She's in town. Why don't we go and meet her together? Because he's a great friend of hers. I said, Roddy, the scars are still there. I don't want to open any wounds. And in any case, I don't think she'll even remember what it was all about. Why should we open up a lot of things? And I therefore declined the offer to meet her again. Uh, she actually became much more active openly towards gay men with the AIDS epidemic. But up to that point, all her friends, the gay men, were very much in the closet. So she didn't have to express herself. She was just sympathetic to them. And I suspect a lot of this had to do because in her own heart, she was an outsider. She was a transplant from England as a child. She never really got over her Englishness, by the way. She lived with it. And she was proud of it. But she had a lot of problems adjusting to the landscape that nurtured her, that made her star from her childhood, from her childhood years. If someone asked you to make a movie about your experiences with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, would you ever do it? Actually, it's a very nice question to ask because it's, it's a relevant question because um, I had a, a script written about this very thing. It's a very hard thing to make. First of all, who plays her? Secondly, it's not about them. It's about, it should be about me in my state of cultural confusion dealing with these two major stars. The script turned out to be schizophrenic because it didn't quite know who to focus on. And then you think of casting it. It's very difficult because they're not going to be enough people who could even resemble her. I did try to have it made and it just dissolved into a state where it's no longer I, I also may, uh, I would like to ask whether the audience would be interested anymore. Would they be interested in the plight of an Indian making a film with two major stars? It sounds a bit odd. <laughs> I think it would be a huge hit, but we'll find <laughs> out. I'll make sure to ask our viewers. In 1982, you directed a miniseries. This is actually one of my favorites of all of the movies you've done. This miniseries about Gloria Vanderbilt's childhood entitled Little Gloria, Happy at Last, starring Betty Davis, Angela Lansbury, Christopher Plummer, Glynis Johns, and Maureen Stapleton. That Ooh. series got six Emmy nominations and a Golden Globe nomination. I understand you developed enormous affection and respect for Betty Davis. Is that right? Oh, very much so. What a, what a lady. As a matter of fact, out of a 200-page script, because it's a miniseries, she's only in 18 pages. 
And the same thing happened with her. What happened was this. We were trying to cast it, and the network nominated some actress who at that time was well-known on TV. And I said, how about offering it to Betty Davis? And they said, oh, there's no way. You know, she'll be insulted. I said, can I give you a story? I did the same thing way back with Peggy Ashcroft. Now, uh, why don't we just test her and try her? We tried and we got her. She said, yes. Well, you cannot believe, we, we couldn't believe our luck. But here's the thing. She made a proviso, or at least I was told she made this proviso. She said she would not rehearse because we were rehearsing with the rest of the rest of the cast came to New York. And these are the names you just listed. Minus Betty Davis, Angela Lansbury, Christopher Plummer, Maureen Stapleton, Glynis Johns. They all agreed to rehearse for a week. People didn't do that kind of thing in television at the time. And they all agreed. So we hired a big rehearsal room and we rehearsed for a week without Miss Davis because I was told by the producers she was not going to rehearse. So I respected that request, also realizing there were only 18 pages of her scenes and 200 pages. We weren't going to make demands on her to come all the way from California for that. We started shooting. On the first day, I was called off the set. We were lining up a shot. Miss Davis has arrived in New York. I said, oh, fabulous. She'd like to see you. The moment we finished shooting the day, I got into my car, arrived at her hotel, never forget going up the elevator doors open come out and down this long corridor it seemed like uh, miles away a door opens it's silhouetted against it is this figure and i'm walking towards this figure and it's like slow motion and i get there and there's this woman and she says come on in i said hello miss davis yes now i have an issue with you why wasn't I asked to be in rehearsals? I said, but Miss Davis, I was told that you didn't want to rehearse. That is absolute nonsense. Of course I would have rehearsed. She said, who told you this? I said, I think the producer, I thought so. Producers, I don't like them. <laughs> I said, well, Miss Davis, I'm sorry I didn't ask you. She said, now they're all ahead of me. They've all rehearsed. They all know what they're supposed to do, but don't worry. Let me see what I can do. And then she says, uh, why are you looking at me that way? She was wearing a wig and a hair down. It was not her own hair. It was all done up. I said, well, actually, Miss Davis, I, I'm looking at your hair. Obviously, you want to show me some. Yes, I want to show what I think she should look like. I said, well, actually, Miss Davis, the style of the 20s when it's set, as you would know, is it's much closer to the head. The way the hair's dressed right now is sort of... A, looks like 1940s and she said the 1940s I was the 40s she said let me do something about this sit down and I'll I'll be back with you in a minute I heard some conversations going on in another part of the room do this do that did you hear what he just said it needs this that the other and she comes back and her hair the wig has been styled much closer to the head and she said is that what you're looking for I said Exactly, Miss Davis, that's perfect, because otherwise I'd have been looking at your hair, not at your face. And she said, good, right, now let's sit down and talk about the part. You know I could have played Wallace Simpson 30 years ago. <laughs> and I've seen your series, and I thought you did very well with it. Now, who is playing my uh, son in this? 
I said, Christopher Plummer. Oh, dear. Well, I suppose he's... He, I suppose he's all right, but I am worried about Angela Lansbury. There's hardly any age difference between us. <laughs> I said, Miss Davis, I'm sure you realize that Miss Lansbury is extremely competent and, and very present in her role. She said, yes, 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 I know. I've just wanted to voice my feelings. She said, anyway, now let's discuss how and what and where. And that's how we started. But you know what? She was testing me. When I mentioned that hairdo and I told her what I thought, I passed the test because when we were on camera, she was brilliant. And I realized that she, she did not stand for any stupidity or bad excuses for incompetence. I made sure I had all the right answers for her questions and she had high respect for that. That's all I can tell you in terms of who she was as an actress. But I can also tell you on her human side, there was something very vulnerable beneath this tough woman. I can't describe it. I can only tell you it was a privilege to get through to this. And I'm sure you've heard this elsewhere. This woman was a total and utter dedicated professional to her art. She knew what was required. Of her. She also knew what her persona was and how to present it. And when you look at the roles she played, she was not above shaving her head to play Queen Elizabeth I. And yet, look at her in The Little Foxes. Total transformation. There was a dedication to this. And I'll never forget when, when I first introduced the character in the film, she plays Alice Gwynne Vanderbilt. And I did say to her, Miss Davis, why did you do this role? I knew what she'd say. She said, well, who else would have asked me to play the richest woman in America? <laughs> and I said, well, of course, that's a fact. And I thought, I've got to introduce her because all those classic scenes of her coming downstairs and huge opulent studio stairs, she'd always be standing somewhere there. So I decided to introduce her on the staircase. And we have this in the series where they're all commenting on the house where the, the Vanderbilts are and that Christopher Plummer makes some kind of remark. And having said the remark, a question is fired at her and he turns around and we turned around with him and there standing there on the stairs is Betty Davis and specifically on the staircase she knew exactly what I was doing and she said to me yes another staircase Warris and I said yes the difference between me talking to Miss Davis and me talking to Miss Taylor I matured quite a bit you see I dared actually you know that was our relationship she, at the end of the shoot the producers came rushing around. Executive producer was talking 20 to the dozen, thanking her so much for being a part of this wonderful show. She went on, he went on a bit and she said, would you please stop? You're boring me. <laughs> so she ruled the roost. One day we were shooting a long banquet scene and she summoned me over and she said, um, uh, Warris, you do know my contract says I stop shooting at six o'clock, even if I'm in mid-sentence. So I said, Miss Davis, I do realize that. And she said, well, the way you're setting all this up, I have a feeling you're not going to be able to achieve that end. And I said, well, how do you think I'm going to do it? She said, you won't finish with me till uh, 10 o'clock tonight. She said, look, let's continue and let's see how we go. Six o'clock, she points to her watch. She said, right, I'll stay 
until you finish with me, because if we don't finish now, you are going to be in deep trouble. And I'm not doing it for them. And she points to the producers. <laughs> We're standing a, a very diplomatic distance away from where she was. So we finished exactly at 10 o'clock that night. And she stood up and said, I'll see you in the morning. She was an amazing woman. She came on set. She loved my cinematographer, who, by the way, is an Englishman. I always work with Tony Imi. She said, Tony, come over here, please. I can see where you're putting the lights. She said, look at this side of my face. It's falling apart, don't you think? <laughs> he said, well, I wouldn't say that, Miss Davis. He said, well, be kind to me, Tony. You see, this is what I call a professional woman of such substance. Anyway, I'm telling you these stories because they're very relevant to my growth as a director. Um, I won't stand I won't stand for any more. I've worked with the greatest, so anyone else who cares to cross my path is not going to be dealing with that little kid who directed Elizabeth Taylor anymore, you know? Oh, I totally get that. And and that brings me to 1984. You directed Arch of Triumph, starring Anthony Hopkins and Leslie Ann Down, which was a remake of the 1948 film with Ingrid Bergman and Charles Boyer. The New York Times gave you a sterling review and said that you, and I'm quoting them here, managed to retain an unusual degree of ominous tension throughout the movie. Warris, you must have felt a lot of pressure knowing that your film was going to be compared to the original. Well, let me tell you, I ran the Ingrid Bergman film. First of all, it was made in the studios in Hollywood on stage. Didn't have an, a single shot of real Paris in it. Ours, the exteriors, we had about 10 days of Paris. But what was extraordinary about it was that I was determined not to have, I wanted to give it an authentic feel. The, the original film didn't have that gravitas of the Nazi invasion of France and the, uh, the taking over of Paris as a city and all the people who were basically displaced people from the war fronts and the refugees from the Nazis. And I wanted to make a very strong statement about what it means to be an outsider. It wasn't just a romantic love story. It's about the condition of outsiders. And the, thing, the, the main character played by Anthony Hopkins plays an illegal uh, immigrant doctor uh, who has f uh, fled France, sorry, fled Germany into France because his fiance got uh, murdered by the this uh, Nazi leader played by, in my film, by uh, Donald Pleasance. Uh, in uh, the series, the, the film, it was uh, Charles Lawton. What, what I'm trying to say is that the Ingrid Bergman film was basically just another attempt at a failed love story. It didn't convince me about the shadow overhanging this entire landscape. And I feel I achieved that. It's almost surreal now to ask you about Copacabana, the film ah. you made in 1985 starring Barry Manilow. You won another Emmy Award for Best Director. Barry Manilow is not known as an actor. What was he like to work with? I love Barry, first of all. Let me say that straight away. Uh, he's an extraordinary character. And of course, I knew him as a, a performer on stage. Uh, he, when this whole thing came up, I wasn't involved originally. It was Dick Clark who, who encouraged Barry to put this whole thing together as a musical. 
By the way, it was one of the first ever TV musicals made in those in the context of narrative and music and song. They decided to base the whole script on Copacabana, the the the, the song, and um, they were looking for a director. And Barry was interviewing a lot of video directors, and he was you know he was imagining it to be in one of those sort of uh, presentations. And I, I he was interviewing me asking me whether I had this kind of sympathy towards that kind of presentation. Dick Clark was with him, and we were having lunch, and Barry was going on about how he thought it would be, and then Dick, in, he just stopped Barry and said, look, Barry, you are talking about a person who directs drama, who knows how to work with actors. He is not going to give you 30-second shots all over the place as video music is done you know it's not that kind of presentation it's it's a narrative structure you need a director who will follow a storyline and performance and also your ability as a non-actor he says Warris is capable of directing some of the best known actors in this profession and you should listen to him and and realize that what you want is not what you're going to get if you do the go the path you want, Barry listened, and uh, they decided to take me on. And when he he was very nervous, and I don't blame him. He was surrounded. I gave him some wonderful actors to work with. The funny thing was, he decided, in order to be ready on set every day, that he'd have private tuition with his acting teacher, and who was also a prominent actress and teacher, Nina Foch. Now, Nina Foch used to go through every scene with him for the day that he was going to shoot the next day. So he'd come on and he'd start emoting. And I'd say, Barry, what are you doing? He says, well, Nina. And I said, Nina and? Well, you know, I discuss, I said, Barry, Nina Foch is a lovely lady. I'm sure you respect her highly, but she's not here on set. I am. You have to relate to everybody else around you. It's not a solo performance. Now, Use some of what you've already acquired through her knowledge, but also listen to me. Good for you. And I see you, I said, I'd give you a compliment, Barry. If there was ever a remake of a Danny Kaye movie, you should be playing those roles. I said, you have enough comedy in you. You have, you've got the ability, but you're hiding it beneath all this. But you're not on stage singing Copacabana. You're acting in the very show that you, is now caused the script to happen. We had this discussion, and I have to tell you, honesty paid off. We, we, we got into a rhythm. And, you know, that show, which was heavy on script and music and all sorts of complications, it's not just, I was given 24 days to shoot the whole thing in. Wow. And he was trying to write it as he was doing a tribute to MGM musicals. <laughs> but all of this was done in that short time. And years later, not, not far off, about two years ago, I saw Mayor Barry after a very long pause. He said to me, Warris, I've never got over the fact how short a time it took to make that incre incredible project. And he said, I give you all the credit. So, you know, it paid off. Oh, it sure did. That's one of the best, most entertaining musical movies made for television ever. Now, I want to get a little bit into your life. You are openly gay. You came to terms with being gay in your late 20s. What was it like as a gay man to be a high-profile Hollywood director in the 70s and 80s? Well, first of all, it, there was no question of even de declaring oneself. I 
was firmly aware of homophobia in the industry, and it still exists, by the way. We know for a fact that there are two or three major stars who've never come out, even though a few have. Uh, I couldn't afford to be gay publicly or professionally. I had to be very discreet. I was a stranger in a what I considered a very privileged position. However, I was also conscious of my background, coming from where I come, because none of that could be declared openly. Uh, I never told anybody. I was a director in Hollywood. I used to go to gay bars because there were plenty in those days. The gay situation was almost beyond belief because it was pre-AIDS. Right. It was the 70s. So my association with anybody who was gay was on a social level, on a very high-end level. In 1987, you directed a British television drama entitled Intimate Contact, which was one of the first films to deal with the issue of HIV and AIDS. It was about a married man who was leading a double life and who had to admit to his wife, played by Claire Bloom, that he had AIDS. What no one on the set knew is that while you were filming this movie, your own partner of 12 years, Ian, was dying of AIDS. How did you get through that? It was something that I don't wish on anybody else uh, to happen to them. Uh, anybody who loses a partner is in a state of uh, disrepair for many years uh, following. In my case, it was ironic because I, this production was the very first drama about AIDS to be made in England. Ian was diagnosed, but we didn't know what it was. At that time, you didn't know what the illness was. It was, you know, ignorance pervaded everything. And he was diagnosed and he was then declared somebody who was at that time given six months. And I'd already committed to the show. So ironically, while he was going through the process of his illness, I started filming the show. And the biggest irony was the production designer had uh, found an abandoned mental asylum in the north of London where we could have the freedom to construct interiors. And he constructed the interior of a hospital based on a hospital in London. I said, no. Show me where the look at, show me what sets you constructed. So we drove out to the mental asylum for the first time to look at the set. And to my shock, he had chosen St. Mary's Hospital in London to base his set on. And that turned out to be where Ian, my partner, was. So here's the situation I'm shooting a film on a set dressed as a hospital set about a man dying of AIDS. And I'm visiting in the evenings on my way home, the hospital in which my partner was dying. I could not talk about this. Meanwhile, the production people had actually furnished me with an advisor about the illness. I already knew and I had pretended with this nurse saying, well, this is this. Is, I'd say, yes, yes, thank you for telling me. Thank you for telling me. But I already knew. My producer called me up the news of the world, it was doing a lot of coverage on AIDS. Every famous person who was possibly getting it or had got it or was dying was mentioned in the paper's headlines. He said, Warris, the news of the world is going to do a report. Uh, it's going to do a story on a 
gay director doing AIDS drama with love in, uh, lover dying in hospital. That was the headline or something of that nature. And it's about you. And I said, yes. I said, please stop it. Stop this headline. Tell them I'll sue them. God knows, how could I have sued them if it was true? Uh, but I said, just do everything you can to staunch this situation. They did manage to stop it. It never came out. But you can imagine what I went through. I had to do a death scene in it. And I thought, my God, this is what I'm going to have to face in reality. But being a drama, it had a much more dramatic exit. I do know that I said to my partner, who was extraordinary in his bravery, but I said, he said to me one day, we're very lucky, aren't we? When he was really sick. And I said, yes, we are. And uh, I said, you know, you have to think of yourself as going to a landscape where suddenly there's a river, there's a lawn, there's a house, there are fabulous people waiting. I got this story in my head from directing Dan in the scene where he's dying. And I thought I would use some of it to comfort Ian, who was dying. And sure enough, he passed away about a, a week or so after I finished shooting. And we screened the film at, uh, at the British Academy. And we had a big opening. And Dan Mercy came up to me and he said, Warris, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you tell me? And I said, Dan, what would have been the point? Me imposing on you something that you didn't need to know about. I was respecting you as an actor and listening to what I asked you to do. I didn't want you to feel sorry for me. And that's what you would have done. You would have felt compassion, naturally, but you would have felt guilty that you were seeing somebody who was who had a hidden part of myself. And, and Dan just hugged me after the screening. He held me for a very long time. And then everyone else in the cast who was still at the screening came up to me one after the other. And they said, Warris, we had no idea. And I said, well, I'm glad you didn't. Because what good would it have done? We wouldn't have achieved anything by your knowledge of my working with you when someone I was was very precious to me, uh, was leaving me. And uh, that story, I will, I'll follow up. I know it's not a part of the drama, but my drama, it is a part of that because um, I had some wonderful nurses, all women. There was a New Zealand nurse and uh, Ian was a New Zealander. So there was a communication between the two of them. And when he was finally in his last, you know, last couple of weeks, he was lying there, and I was sitting with him. By now they'd moved. Uh, no, they hadn't done it yet. They were going to move a bed in into the room with to be with him. And uh, she said, would you like to get into the bed with him? And I said, is that going to be all right? She said, yes, absolutely. Just take your shoes off, fully clothed, just get in there. And I lay next to him. He was in a coma. Do you know, the moment I got into bed with him, he opened his eyes and he looked at me. Then he went back to sleep again. And I knew, uh, he knew that I was there. They put a bed in, in the room with him. I stayed with him right through to the end. And he went 
and I, they left me for 15 minutes. I shouted. I was so angry. I didn't cry, I didn't do any of those things. I just was so angry with him for leaving me. It taught me a hell of a lot about myself because what was leaving me was my reason for my identity, my sexuality, the dignity we had given each other. So that's what was taken from me. And I'm very proud that I had the privilege of that kind of relationship. Uh, I never thought I would find it again, which thank God I have. Jean-Louis and I have been together for 23 years. But being gay, you asked me a question about myself as being a gay man. I'm only able to talk to you now, as I have been able to in the last few years. But for a long time, it was held in because I have a very large family in India where up till very recently it was considered it was really you it was an unspoken situation and gossip was cruel you're expected to get married there have children no matter what your sexuality is there's a lot of hypocrisy goes on and I never wanted to hurt any of my family recently in the last few years that I've been back to India with Jean-Louis it's been as a couple and they all accept it now and that's how far I've come because India has loosened up. The laws have been changed. You can be gay in India now. It's very recent, actually, not that long ago. But now, with and my entire family have accepted us. There's nothing to hide. My world has been now circumscribed by the fact that I've done what I've done. It started off with my professional life, and it's now moved on into my. It's transformed into my personal life. And what a life it's been, Waris. In 2018, the British Film Institute held a month-long celebration of your work, and they called it Breaking Through because you were the first Indian TV director in Britain. That must have been very special for you to get such well-deserved recognition. I was so thrilled when they asked me to celebrate. It's, it's actually my, they were celebrating my television career primarily, although they did show a couple of my films. You are one of those directors who has not gravitated towards the spotlight. You really live under the radar. You've never tried to be a star in your own right, like Scorsese or Spielberg or Hitchcock. Why not? Why haven't you blown your own horn more? You've had an amazing life. Thank you for asking me this, but I, I was always below the radar. I, it didn't. It wasn't uh, deliberate. I mean, I won the. You know, the irony is, I have won a BAFTA for Edward and Mrs. Simpson, and I've won uh, uh, an Emmy for Copacabana. Do you know? I was in neither of those places to collect my awards. If I had been able to and been visible, maybe something would have come in. But the irony was. I was in England when I won the uh, award for Copacabana because I was taking care of Ian. I got a call at six in the morning saying that uh, I had won and I didn't even know I was nominated. Oh. So that's what happened. Uh, so, uh, Billy Crystal accepted on my behalf, I believe. Waris Hussein is unable to attend. That was one. And then the BAFTA award, I wasn't here because I was in LA. So my schizophrenic life. <laughs> contributed to my anonymity. <laughs> well, it's not too late for you to lose that anonymity. And that brings me to my final question. 
Have you ever thought about writing your memoirs? It would be the most fascinating book. Well, I would love to do that, but I, I found myself incapable of sitting down and doing this. I'm not very good on the computer. I'm not very good at my handwriting. I need to talk to people like yourself. Uh, I'm not like half these people who come out with a book every other uh, generation and tell you everything about themselves. And I, I don't know whether anybody would be interested. That's my real, maybe it's a flaw in my reasons for not doing it. Well, as I've said to you before, these stories, some of which you told us today, would be lost forever if they're not somehow maintained for posterity. And you do play an enormous role in cinematic history. So I hope I hope you'll find a way to write your memoirs. Well, with your encouragement and thinking, perhaps I will. Well, Morris, it has been an absolute thrill to have you on our show. I have a feeling all of our viewers are going to be buying and downloading and streaming all of your movies, just like I did when I was preparing for this interview. Thank you so much for sharing your talent and your experiences with us and, and for opening your heart the way you did. You actually brought me to tears twice. Well, thank you for asking me. <laughs> our guest has been the acclaimed movie director, Waris Hussein. I'm Harvey Brownstone. Thank you to our producer, Steve Silver. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time. Remember to subscribe to the Harvey Brownstone Interviews YouTube channel. Be sure to check out more interviews by Harvey Brownstone on this podcast channel.